Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth, in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church, would you join me in prayer? Uh, God, we come and we believe that your Bible is truth. So God, we come and we, we humble ourselves before you. We submit our own will, our own agenda, our own thoughts, our own ideas, our emotions, the totality of our being, God, we come and we place it before you. We humble ourselves and we say, God, speak to your people. Holy Spirit, come and open our ears and our hearts to receive the message that you've prepared for us today. And God, I ask that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, my God. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whew, a couple of weeks ago, I was standing back by the sound booth having a conversation. And I was asked a very interesting question. I was asked if I was a millennial. And I honestly had no idea how to answer I don't know why I blurted out, absolutely not. But it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. So I went home and I took my cell phone out and to my utter shock and amazement, a quick Google search revealed that I am indeed a millennial. So I've decided to really own this, to embrace my very special place in this interesting generation of people. So the millennials, here we are. My generation is called the digital generation. The first generation to go, grow up in the age of the internet and in front of a screen. You know, what's funny is many millennials, they don't know why we say, hey, would you hang up the phone? They have no idea why when you're in the car, you say, could you roll down the window? Unless your dad drove a 1988 Ford Taurus and you rolled down the window. They don't know what life was like before cell phones. 
But my generation has, however, made invaluable contributions to the world. We have added untold richness and beauty to the English language by shortening phrases and words. For example, YOLO. Thank a millennial. You only live once. Or FOMO. The fear of missing out. And I seriously, this is embarrassing. I had to go to Google again and say, what is millennial slang? And this came up, I kid you not. Instead of saying that a wedding was romantic, beautiful, and an extravagant display of love and commitment, a millennial can sum all of this up by saying that that was totes on fleek. You're welcome. You're welcome. To all my boomers in the house, you're welcome for really impacting the language and culture. We are the hashtag generation. We can perfectly describe and label a situation with one simple social media hashtag. Instead of a long, drown-out description of how something made us feel uncomfortable, sad, angry, shocked, worried, we can simply write hashtag triggered. And while the millennials can take credit for the invention and implementation of the hashtag, words like triggered reach across generations and resonate with each of us. You see, I can trigger an intense emotional response this morning just by saying something like, pineapple belongs on pizza. And some of you just decided to never come back to this church. I don't believe that, by the way. I think that's gross. Amen. Now, some of you have decided to stay. Praise the Lord. Uh, I can also trigger many of you by saying, <clears throat> I'd like you to put your heavy objects down first. The Los, Angel the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are better than the Dodgers. Yep. Or Miracle Whip is a gift from God. That's false. It's gross. <laughs> Admittedly, those are, are silly examples, but there are, are, are serious examples of words that can, can trigger a strong emotional response in, the, in us, and it just so happens that this morning's sermon may need to come with a trigger warning. We've been asking the question the last two weeks, who is the church? And this morning, we're answering that question with the church is the family of God. I want to just pause for a moment and ask you to think about what comes to mind when you hear the word family, what kind of emotions are stirred up in you when you hear that word family? What images and memories flash by your eyes? You know, for some of us, the word family will bring up wonderful and happy memories of, of being a child or, or raising children. But for others, the word family can be a difficult word that, that doesn't bring back memories or feelings of happiness. It can be a difficult word, that, that small word family. And perhaps for most of us, it's a mixed bag. It's, it's somewhere in the middle, middle, both difficult and good, both happy and sad, like a book with different chapters that have been written over our lives. And this is my encouragement before we dive into God's word and open it up and, and talk about the family of God. My encouragement is that whatever the response is for you, I think we can all just agree that family is messy. 
It's messy. It's difficult. Families in and of themselves, earthly families, are imperfect. I had this dream of having children and being a perfect dad. And day one, strike. I messed it up. Dad's in the room. I don't know about you, but maybe my most prayed prayer of all time is, Jesus, help my kids forget blank. Families are messy. They're they're, they're imperfect. But before we decide whether or not we want to be a part of the family of God, based upon our past lived experience, let's first come and take a look at what Scripture says the family of God is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. I just want to take a break here, a pause, and, and, and address this this word as sons. What does that mean for us in, this, in the room? Does that mean God only adopts men and males to be in his family? Absolutely not. Is this an example of the patriarchy? Yes, but maybe not in the way you're thinking. Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus. He's writing in a specific culture and a specific context. And in the context in Ephesus, as Paul is writing, there is only one gender that had rights as an heir to the father. And that was the sons. But in no way does that mean that as we read this text, that we can, that we can totally read sons and daughters. God's invitation is open to both sons and daughters in this place here. So I'm going to read that again. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. These verses here, just just three short verses, hold the key to understanding our position as members of the family of God. You, sitting here today, wherever you've come from and whatever you've done, you have been chosen by God. Before the very foundations of the earth, you have been chosen by God. Before creation came into existence, John chapter 1 says that all creation was spoken into existence by Jesus and for Jesus. And before that happened, before any of that took place, God chose you. He knew you and chose you to be his. And I know that is coming out just heavy-handed this morning, but I know there's somebody in the room today that needs to hear that. I know that in a group of people this size, there are people questioning their place in God's family. I'm sure there are those here now who are really wondering if God sees them. Wondering if God cares for them. 
They're wondering if, if being here actually matters, if it actually makes a difference. There are those in this room I know who feel tired and others who feel overlooked and forgotten. And before we cover anything else, before anything else will ever make sense about being the family of God, hear this, God chose you on purpose, knowing everything about you who you'd be and what you'd become and the decisions you would make and the countless times that you would blow it and mess up. God knew you and he still chose you. In Ephesians chapter 1, 5 declares that in love, I don't know if you are a Bible note taker, underwriter, highlighter, but that is those two words, highlight them, underline them, in love. God did not, out of duty, choose you. Not begrudgingly, not out of anger or frustration or because he had no other options, but in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The first characteristic of the family of God is that we are a chosen family. We are a chosen family. God chooses to adopt us as his own. I'll never forget October 28th, 2021. I have a terrible memory. I, I can't remember most things, but there are some days in my life that I know will be guiding posts for me for the rest of my life. October 28th. 2021, Eddie had been placed in our home just 10 months earlier by Angel's Foster Care. I was actually on a daddy-daughter date on Lower, Strait at Set, Lower State Street at 7-Eleven getting slushies with my girls when the social worker called and says, we have a baby boy that needs an immediate placement. I was so flustered, I was so overwhelmed, and this came out of the blue, I blurted out, okay, pencil us in, which I'm sure filled her with a ton of confidence. <laughs> I drove the girls to a babysitter, I picked up Brianne from work, just a few short hours later, we were driving to the hospital to pick up a boy and a baby I had never met. I looked at Brianna on the way and I said, hey, honestly, babe, I know we've talked about this for months and we've gone through the training and prepared, but I just don't know how I'm going to do this. And I just cannot say the words I love you to this baby no matter how long I have it. I can't do it. I can't go there. We picked up Eddie. We brought him home. And it had been four years and I forgot how small babies are. Parents, you remember that? Every baby that comes, you think, was my last one this small? And we bring it in, and the girls came bounding in. We'd been talking for months and months. God may place a baby in our home, and our goal is to get that baby back to its family when they're healthy and ready. We're going to take this baby, and we're going to love it as best as we can for as long as we can until God restores that family, and the baby is sent back. So Adeline came running up, and she kissed him on the forehead, and she said, here, I colored you a picture. I looked at the picture, and it was all of us and a baby. And she didn't know what the baby looked like, so it was just blankets 
And I looked at her on the, on the picture, and, and I said, Adeline, what, what are those? And she said, those are tears. And she said, look, I wrote right here, I'm going to miss you when you leave us. Just for an update, I lasted about 24 hours before I looked at that baby and I said, I love you. I love you even if you leave me. I love you even if I have you for a week or a month or a year or five years. I love you. And Brianna said, I knew you'd do that. <laughs> Over the next few months, our our hearts broke as we learned more about the circumstances that led to my son's removal from his family. Our heart broke for his mother and his family and for him. This is surely not the way God designed it in the beginning. A lot of hospital visits, a hospitalizations later, a lot of phone calls to our friends in the room saying, we don't know what we're doing and we don't know if we can keep doing it. What do we do? And you guys answered the phone and you brought us meals and you prayed for us and you loved us. Physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy to get this boy well. And 10 months later, I was a nervous wreck sitting in the courtroom. I was a nervous wreck and at the same time felt total peace. And I heard the judge say, today you're asking the court to add the final order of for adoption. If the court enters that order in the eyes of the law, Eddie will have all the same rights, claims, and benefits as if he were your naturally born. And among those rights and benefits include being a full heir to you. I heard that two ways that day. I couldn't help but think God as judge also speaking that over my life at the exact same time. Hey, what happened in the courtroom that day changed our lives and little Eddie's life forever. This court confirmed what we knew to be true in our heart for months. This sweet, precious boy was forever a part of our family. And now he is my child and my son as much as my daughters are. And as our son, Eddie is now a cronin and bears my name. Do you ever think about your name? Do you ever think about how you got your name? I got my name because I was born into my family name. I received my name from my dad. I, I, I'm David Cronin's son, and I carry his name. And, and he was Aaron Cronin's son. And I carry their names simultaneously. But others came by our names differently. Some of you married into a family and received a name. My wife stood on the altar one day and she gave up her name and took mine. And that was her choice. And she chose a new name. Some of you chose your family name after tragedy. 
And you had two parents and two names, and you chose which name you'd go by. Others are adopted into a family and receive a name that way. But however you got your name, a name communicates something, and a name always has meaning. I flew home to Minnesota a couple weeks ago uh, over Father's Day to surprise my 77-year-old dad. And I just don't get to see him enough. And as I was sitting on the deck watching him tend to his rose garden, I just was hit with memory after memory of being a boy and working in the yard next to him and him saying, son, a Cronin works hard. Son, a Cronin works before they play. That's why you can't go out on Saturday until your chores are done. Then he'd go in and he'd prepare dinner for a new family at the church and he said, hey son, a Cronin is hospitable. We take care of people who don't have anyone. And I watched him invite some of the craziest, weirdest people I'd ever met to our family table and just stood and go, how did they get here? This is weird. Who are these people? Then he'd feed them. And I learned that a Cronin is expected to care for people. Can we bring this all together? Our spiritual adoption is not a mere legal transaction. It is a radical transformation of our identity. Just as earthly adoption signifies the intentional and unconditional love of the adoptive parents, our adoption into God's family demonstrates his unending love and his unending grace toward us. And we change we change. Our identity changes. We're no longer strangers and foreigners, but beloved sons and daughters. This is Romans 1 through chapter 7. Paul says we are strangers. We are actually, because of our sin condition, at war with God. He is holy. He is perfect. He is like nothing else. And you cannot be in communion with him because of your sin. And over seven chapters of the most theologically rich and profound text we could ever read, we see that God brought peace to that relationship. He restores that relationship. And then in Romans 8, a little lower, Paul says, and because of that, now you are sons of God. We carry the name of our Father, just as my Son now carries my name. You carry the name of your Heavenly Father. As His heirs, we, we walk in the fullness of His name, in, in, the, in the full power of His name. How sad that I don't wake up every morning and walk in the freedom and the power of the name of God. Bearing his name, Ephesians says that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. All the goodness of God is available to us through what his son did and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? How in the world did this happen? How is it possible? And I should have been paying attention to my notes because I just gave it away two minutes ago. Verse 7 says, in him we have what? Redemption. It'll be there in a minute. We have redemption through his blood. 
The forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, the way we have trespassed into territory that we have no right being into. That's how the Bible talks about sin. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him. The uniting of things in heaven and things on earth. I wasn't born a physical orphan. I was born to David and Linda Cronin, who were just about the best parents I could ask for, especially if they put up with me for all those years. My mom says I gave her all of her gray hairs, which is true. I wasn't born a physical orphan, but I was born a spiritual orphan. You were born a spiritual orphan. Spiritually bankrupted by sin. This is in the gospel. This is what makes the gospel sweet and the gospel good. We are spiritually bankrupted by sin, separated from the one who created us. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through his, his death and his spilled blood, we have been redeemed and forgiven, justified, made right, and declared righteous. And God could have stopped there and said, hey, I'm done, I took care of your thing, but stay away from me. No. Then he adopted us into his family. He brings us from darkness into marvelous light. What a story. That we were once orphaned but are now heirs to the creator of the world. Co-heirs with Christ himself living in the riches of his grace, which he doesn't give sparingly. Praise God that as we come to him, he doesn't distribute grace and distribute mercy like we're living in a famine, but he offers it to us to feast upon the riches and the goodness of God. He lavishes upon his dearly loved children. I gotta hurry. I'm gonna do that. But I'm not skipping this story, even though it says, if time allows. I work in Uganda. That's my job. My full-time job. Work for an organization called Agape International Children Ministries, and we rescued orphaned and vulnerable children in that country. And it was on a trip where we took some of the high schoolers away who live at Agape Children's Village, a home for orphaned children. I was sitting in this group of guys, and it was just hanging out time. And I said, hey, what, what, I want to know what's troubling, what's troubling you guys. What's weighing heavy on your heart? And this boy, Andrew, said, hey, I, I, I was at school with my friends, and they were all bragging about their dads. 
One of their dads was a wealthy politician. And another one was an engineer. And they went, my dad is this. My dad is this. My dad is this. And he's, as he said this, his eyes filled up with tears. And I, and I knew what was happening right away. This boy never knew his father. He was found on the border of the District Republic of Congo and Uganda, totally abandoned. And through those tears, a smirk kind of like lifted one side of his mouth. And he said, you know what I said? I said, what'd you say? He said, my dad created the whole galaxy. <laughs> Come on! In that pain and in that sadness also coexisted the joy that God is his father. Where an earthly father may not exist, may have abandoned, may have left, may have forsaken the child, he looked and he said, my God made the universe and my God made me. And your dad sound cool, but my dad is awesome. A characteristic of the family of God is we are a chosen family. He chose you and he adopted you, but only through the work of his son on the cross. New age religion will tell you that we are all children of God. Just do whatever you want. Uh-uh. Not how it works. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one goes to the Father except through me. Chosen and adopted. Maybe the best news about our adoption to God's family is that it isn't dependent on us. He doesn't call perfect people to be his children, but he redeems sinners. Amen? You can't earn your way in. You can't work your way in. Man, that religion is exhausting. God, let me work enough for you to like me and approve of me and call me your child. You can't do it. There's nothing you could ever do that would be good enough to earn your place in God's family. You can't buy your way in. No one takes a U-Haul truck to heaven. You can only be brought in. God doesn't look at our resumes to determine whether or not he will adopt us. He doesn't decide on our outward appearance to determine whether he will adopt us. He doesn't discriminate based on ethnicity or the color of our skin. He doesn't sort people by their socioeconomic status or the size of their 401k. And because of this, the truth is, and the second characteristic of the family of God is that we are a blended family. The family of God is diverse. The family of God is diverse. Perhaps one of the most beautiful things about the family of God is the diversity in it. The love, the blessing, and salvation of God have been extended outside of God's chosen people in the Old Testament and made available to every man, every woman, and every child who would call in the name of Jesus. Now think back to Jesus' three years of earthly ministry. This is one of the issues that people hated Jesus for. They hated Jesus because how dare he eat with sinners? How dare he, a Jew and a rabbi, 
sit with the woman at the well. Doesn't he know what she did? Doesn't Jesus know how she lived her life and the trouble she's gotten herself into? Well, did you hear what Jesus did? He called those, those stinky, dirty fishermen to be his disciples. Can you believe that? He chose a tax collector? What is he thinking? And Jesus, in three years of ministry, continued to break cultural and ethnic norms and talk to the Samaritans. You know, as I was reading this, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks, and, I, and I, I had to stop and just have some time with God. Because too often as I engage with the family of God, I find myself looking more like a Pharisee than like Jesus. I want people to be like me. I find it's much easier to get along if everybody does what I think is right. Anybody else? Wouldn't it be nice if just everybody did what is so obviously right in my eyes? This is what I say about parenting. If you just did what I said, we'd have no problems. But the truth is, not everyone in the family of God is going to think like me or have the same opinions as me. Not everyone is going to come to the same conclusions as me. Not everyone is going to look like me, act like me, talk like me, or think like me. And that's okay. And it's not just okay. It's good. I have known so many people who have let differing opinions on minor issues separate them from God's family, and it breaks his heart. It breaks God's heart when we choose to divorce our family, the spiritual family, and say, I'll have nothing to do with you because of a, a difference of opinion on a minor issue. Did you hear me say minor issue? I'm not talking about the deity of God, the deity of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. I'm talking about minor issues, like how you should dress when you go to church. What kind of music we sing. If we have drums, if we don't have drums. In the family of God, our differences won't disappear when we get saved but we must take our opinions and our preferences and live in submission to the gospel. They must be surrendered at the foot of the cross. We are called to love one another as Christ has loved us, displaying a supernatural unity that defies the brokenness in the world. It should live in stark contrast to the division and the hate and the brokenness outside the family of God. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. Another Pauline letter here. Verse 26, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's a cool picture. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. having spent a lot of time in a lot of different countries and a lot of different cultures, I believe what I'm about to say with every fiber of my being. Nothing else 
in the whole world has the power to unite people from different continents, different countries, different tribes, in different languages. The power of the gospel transcends cultural differences, transcends traditions, transcends denominations, and transcends politics. But let us not mistake unity for uniformity. I got married. Uh, about 14 years ago, I'm going to celebrate my 14th year wedding anniversary in October. Uh, and yep, only by the grace of God did she stay with me this long. Hallelujah. I remember sitting in premarital counseling with my pastor, Brian Stewart, at the time, and he said, okay, guys, I got to warn you, the first year of marriage is very difficult. You're going to take two families, and you're going to them together, and there's going to be some mess to deal with. And I, and I arrogantly thought, you don't know how much we love each other. Some some of you have been married longer than me. That's why you're laughing. I said, you don't know how much we love each other. It's just going to be love. All we need is love. We have no problems. Until we did our first load of laundry and tried to fold towels. I said, Lord, I cannot be married to this woman who folds towels like this. This is not how the Cronins do it. My dad was a professional chef growing up, and so, like, that was a big deal, and that's why he liked feeding people, and that was his, like, how he showed love, and, but very, like, trained and mise en place and had all this stuff in order, and I married a full-blooded Italian woman, and uh, she said, we're going to have spaghetti. I said, great, and she said, I'm going to make it from scratch. I said, praise the Lord. Let's do this, and I walked in, and I looked up at the ceiling. I said, honey, how did the whole can of tomatoes get on the ceiling. I mean, it looks like a bomb went off. I said, this is not how Cronins do it. We keep things neat and tidy. And I asked her permission for all these stories, and we actually laughed at like midnight last night so hard at the towels and the tomatoes. And so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, and she'll give you a whole list of my uh, idiosyncrasies, if you will. Listen, marriage is this illustration where two become one, but not the same. Two become one, but not the same. And there's actually beauty in that. That's cool. And so that my marriage is totally different, even though I carry my dad's name, than my dad and my mom's marriage, because God took us and we came one, but we're not the same. And he took both of those things and he brought together. He said, this is your helpmate and this is your helpmate. This is what you need and this is what you need. And you're going to become one, but you're not going to become the same. Unity is not meant to be uniformity. In a society that emphasizes individualism, in a culture that emphasizes self-centeredness, the unity within the family of God is a powerful testimony to the reconciling work of the gospel. It is in our unity that the world sees the love and transforming power of Christ. We must strive to foster an environment of genuine love and compassion and understanding where forgiveness and reconciliation flow freely. And where all members are esteemed 
higher than themselves. This is the exhortation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So here are our characteristics of the family of God. We are a chosen family. God chooses to adopt us as his own. We are a blended family. Unity, but not uniformity. We bring all of our different families and all of our different traditions and cultures, and we submit them to God's word, first of all, and we prioritize Jesus over everything. And thirdly, we are a committed family. The family of God chooses to walk in love. Something that stuck with me in that premarital counseling was, hey, I know you feel in love now, he said, but someday you're going to have to choose to be in love. <sighs> no, we won't. We like so love each other. Yeah, you do. There are seasons where you get up and you say, I'm going to love you even though I might not like you today. We choose to walk in love. It's a choice. It doesn't just happen. John 13, verse 33. 11, 12, here we go. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The family of God is a remarkable gift. We have to acknowledge that embracing it comes with challenges. I have never, ever attended a church or worked at a church for all of my years in a place that was absent of challenges. There is zero perfect churches out there. Zero. Because the church is made up of us. Us. If we walk with Jesus together long enough, I will terribly offend you at some time. I will hurt your feelings. I'll disappoint you. I will not live up to the expectations you have for me. I will say something stupid. I will forget about something I was supposed to do. I will offend you. And you, me. Like, we can just expect it. We don't try to do these things. We don't set out to, to hurt people. But misunderstandings and offenses and disagreements, they constrain our relationships, right? However, when we recognize our shared identity in Christ, we can navigate these challenges with grace and love when I choose to walk in love. When I choose to see you, to look into your eyes and say, you are not the person who offended me. You are not the person who hurt me. You are not the person who disagrees with me. You are not the person who thinks differently than me, who thinks that I sing weird or too loud or do weird things when I play guitar. That's not who you are. What you are is a dearly loved child of God. You are my brother. You are my sister. And we are in this until Jesus returns. Amen. 
and I am going to choose, no matter how difficult or how uncomfortable or how awkward, to look at you and say, this will not destroy the relationship. Not as long as I am sucking air will this destroy the relationship. We must choose to walk in love. Galatians 6.10 exhorts us, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are in the household of faith. We are called to care for, support, to encourage one another in this journey of faith. Our love for God should overflow into love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, you weren't meant to follow Jesus alone. You will not experience the fullness of life in Christ if you try to follow the Savior alone. It just wasn't designed that way. You cannot go to bedside Baptist every day and live in the fullness of who God wants you to be. You have to live in the context of family. And I'm not even arguing that this be your family. Go find a family. Just find one. You need the family of God. You need the people sitting next to you for accountability for encouragement, to build each other up in the faith. You need their spiritual gifts that you don't have, and they need your spiritual gifts that you don't have. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, we're one body, and don't you dare forget that Christ is the head, but the rest of you, you're different parts. And how foolish of you to say, I don't need a hand, or I don't need an eye, or I don't need an ear. God knew what he was doing when he built the body of Christ. You all have a role to play. You need the family of God. You need your spiritual family. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we prepare to close. I want to end with a scripture in Romans 8. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, as Paul wrote to the Romans, he knew exactly what this idea of adoption would have meant. Culturally and by law, a Roman father could disown any of his children at any time. Rome was a brutal place to grow up. They did not ascribe to the Lord's way of doing family. And if I had a child that for any reason dishonored me or didn't please me or didn't look the way I wanted them to look or didn't act the way I wanted them to act, I could take that child and I could literally throw them away and disown them and have nothing to do with them. Cut off from the family, removed as an heir, and stripped of their familial rights, privileges, and identity. But there's a very interesting law in Rome at that time. This was not the case for an adopted Roman child. 
in Rome, an adopted child could never be disinherited. An adopted child could never be disowned. Although the family isn't perfect, this church isn't perfect, the members of God's family isn't perfect, our spiritual family has something that no earthly family is. Lock into me right now. This is it. This is it. At the beginning, I said the word family can trigger us. Some of us came from terribly painful families. We hear the word father and our hearts get knots in our, our stomachs get knots in it. We hear the word family, we say not for me, but our spiritual family has something our earthly family never will. A perfect father. A perfect savior and brother in Jesus. And a perfect helper in the Holy Spirit. Church is a family that's keep our eyes on our Father. Through Jesus, God brings you close. He adopts you. He makes you an heir and promises to never leave you or forsake you. And in light of this, Paul says we turn to God and we cry, Abba. The most intimate and tender title for a father. It's the name my son says to me when he crawls in my lap and he says, Daddy. Let's pray. God, we just want to delight in who you are. We're going to revel in the fact, God, that you chase after us. Like the prodigal son in the New Testament who, who tried to run and distance himself, who went to the world for every pleasure he could find. God, when he was bankrupt and had nothing, he turned and there was the father waiting. God, we thank you that you are waiting for us. That you have chosen us. That you have adopted us. And that you don't treat us as some less than. You, you call us heirs and sons and daughters of the living God. What a good God you are. 